Welcome to the Calvary Cast, a podcast from Calvary Bible Church in Grand Junction, Colorado. At Calvary, we exist for the glory of God, the good of His people, and the Great Commission. Do you know what song this is? It's a party! It's happy birthday. The Calvary Cast is one year old! Are you kidding me right now? When this episode drops on Wednesday, Wednesday, one year old. Wow. Isn't that exciting? That's very exciting. We should have brought some cake in here or something like that. That's huh? unbelievable. I know, right? Who would have guessed? Where did this year go? That we would have made it one year. I know. I know. But and our fan base has exploded. Yeah. I mean, oh, this man. little podcast started a year ago as a little baby and it's still a little baby. <laughs> still in diapers. <laughs> we still have the same virtual live studio audience, oh, which is mainly oh, me. Which I should be playing that. Shoot, oh. I didn't do that. Pull it out, you know, for fun from, from the past, but I didn't. Yeah. So, but it, so anyway, that's really, that's almost unbelievable. Yeah. I can't believe how fast this year went. I know. Yeah, I think February 19th, if I looked at it correctly, we, uh, we dropped our first episode a year ago. Time flies when Time you're having flies. nothing but fun. Time flies when you're having nothing but fun. Nothing but fun. Today is also That's the motto of our church. <laughs> nothing <laughs> but fun. <laughs> nothing but fun. <laughs> Calvary. Nothing but fun. Yeah. Not quite. Yeah. Uh, today is also another big holiday. Are you doing anything to celebrate this uh, terribly uh, hallmarky holiday? Not terrible. Oh, it's Valentine's Day. It's Valentine's Oh, did you forget? Oh. Yeah. Sort of. The dumpster. I mean, I guess I remembered a little bit, like, but not much. Are you and Natalie Valentine's Day people? No. And I have made the rule, this is a, it's a bogus holiday. It's it is invented bogus by the card companies yeah. and the flower shops and such. So, Did you read the, uh, our favorite news uh, site, did you read their, one of their articles today about, that, about uh, Valentine's Day? No, Babylon B. Uh, yeah. Women gets great gifts for Valentine's Day. Does not post them on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought that was hilarious. Yes. Well, <clears throat> yeah, no. What, did you guys do anything? Did you get? We went out the other night. It wasn't for Valentine's or no, just just to, okay. to, but it covers Valentine's, and we're right. having some some friends over tonight. And if it was in the same week, it was it, covered it counts. Valentine's. Yeah. yeah, and and uh, I like to think of my wife and I as very practical. Mm-hmm. And so we see it as a made up holiday and I don't need a special right. day to express my love to her. Now, this makes us sound like callous jerks. It really does. It really does. People are going to be like, those guys are total jerks that don't love their wives and their wives are at home that are like, but doesn't he know that I really want him to take me out for <laughs> Valentine's and buy me jewelry and flowers? I did buy her flowers, though, but not for Valentine's just because I buy flowers for my wife regularly because I love her. Yeah. But Natalie always says don't buy flowers. So just because she thinks they're a waste, too. Really? But um, let's see. My daughter texted us today, our oldest, Ashley, mm-hmm. and she said, uh, happy Valentine's Day. Six years ago, I was alone on Valentine's Day. Mm. Now she's married, right? Yeah, right? So she said, six years ago, I was alone on Valentine's Day, and I remember dad texting me, Jesus is your Valentine. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's so true. Uh, that's like that's a, that's a Babylon B article come to life right there. Yeah. Oh man. I don't have a Valentine. Jesus, a heartbroken, is your Valentine. angry single man living in mother's basement is, reminds everyone that Jesus is your Valentine. Ah yeah. oh, man, that's an article I should write that one. Anyway. <laughs> I do have a funny story that my wife reminded me about Valentine's Day before we move on too far. Okay. Evidently, like our first Valentine's, uh, let's see, we were dating, and I I ordered her a gift, and it, I think it arrived on Valentine's. She could tell the story better than I because it was funny. Anyway, it was an Amazon package. I was home. I was at her house for lunch, and it showed up just as I was getting ready to leave, and I was all excited. <laughs> And I walked in the the house. I was like, it came. And I ripped open this box and packing peanuts fly everywhere and pull out this this bamboo plant that I bought on Amazon (laughs) that looked fake. And I looked at it and was like, is it real? And I gave it to her. I was like, happy Valentine's Day. And then there was also like a a sample pack of lotion or something. How romantic (laughs) is that, huh? Oh, man. Yeah, so. Too bad this one's taken, ladies. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my word. Well, that was five minutes of (laughs) just a waste of everyone's time, but funny stuff. Anyway, we are back talking about our book, In My Place, Condemned Stood. It feels really awkward to transition this after that. It does. We need a long, awkward pause, and that breaks it up. There you go. Pause. Is that long enough and awkward for you? Sure. Last time you didn't like it because I cut it short. Right. Like, you know me, like, even in the prayer circles and stuff, I like to say, I'm going to let it go along. Yeah, you know, I started that, and then you claimed it. What? Yeah, I did that before you ever did that. I was doing that way before you. you weren't. Before you were doing that. (laughs) Oh, well, we just ruined it. So we ruined that because we could have transitioned. I know. J.I. Packer and Mark Dever wrote a book, In My Place Condemned He Stood. We are in Chapter 2. Second part, we're we're trying to finish this chapter because it's long. Just where were we at last time? Yeah, so really what they were talking about, what we've talked about up this far in this particular chapter is, you know, in the line from that song, in my place, condemned he stood. They're talking about in my place, right? So that's, we were talking about substitution. <clears throat> Excuse me. So when we talk about the atonement, we're talking about it in terms of substitution. Christ dying in our place. So uh, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So that phrase, Christ died for our sins, is when... What we're asking that when you talk about the atonement, you're talking about the big picture, like, okay, what does that mean? And we find out it means a number of things. One of those being substitution, that little word for he died in our place or in our stead. The other word that we looked at the the first time we talked about this was propitiation, which is the averting of God's wrath through the substitutionary work of Christ. Right. So he as he was he was substituting for us. We deserved it. He was there absorbing the wrath of God, propitiating God's righteous wrath, that righteous response to our sin right. for us. Right. Okay. So that's the really was the first part of substitution that we saw. Yes. <clears throat> and then in this chapter, he so he more fully explains the idea of substitution in our place. 
but then gets into what we call penal substitutionary atonement. The word penal being the from the word penalty, where what he was doing on the cross is bearing or paying a price, ultimately, right? The consequences of our sin. And uh, he makes this comment in this uh, passage in under the section substitution and retribution. He says penal substitution as an idea presupposes a penalty due to us from God the judge for wrong done and failure to meet his claims. So it's essentially we sinned, which incurred the penalty, okay, from God, and Jesus substitutes in our place, goes to the cross, and pays for that penalty. He goes on to say the locus classicus on this is Romans 1.18 through 3.20, but the thought is everywhere in the New Testament. <clears throat> so, in the Old Testament, I would say, yeah, I would add to absolutely. that. Absolutely. But he just says New Testament in the sense of that's really explaining the work of Christ. Right. But from Old and New Testament, we draw this idea that um, sin brings guilt and p- punishment. Right. That that there's a penalty to be paid because of sin. That's It's similar and in, in very much in line with the idea of, of propitiation we talked about, that God in his righteousness, when, when there is sin, there's retribution for that. Okay, there's a penalty that needs to be paid. And we know that even intuitively. Right. Mm -hmm. And he brings that up. He's like when a person comes to the place where they acknowledge their sin, when there's a conviction of sin, they recognize that they deserve to be punished for that. Right. It's one of the one of the things that we need to understand, even to come to a true saving faith in Christ, is that the wages of sin is death. That was promised back to Adam and Eve. That was a punishment for sin. If you disobey me, there's death. And then that is because we're all sinners. We all deserve that punishment of death, both physical and, and, and eternal, eternal yeah. death. And, um, and so um, somebody's got to pay that penalty because God can't just sweep, sweep it under the rug. Yeah, I think we talked about that before, that, that God would be unjust Right. He's no longer just and righteous and holy if he overlooks that which is uh, an offense to him. Sure, yeah. And so there's a, So it's all throughout Scripture, both Old and New Testament. We know it in our conscience. We understand that as when you become, when you understand you're guilty, you understand somebody should pay for this, and um, and that it should be you. Right. But the glory of the atonement is that Christ substitute in our place was our substitute to pay that penalty for us. And ultimately, when we talk about the idea of mercy, that's largely what that means. Right. You're not getting what you deserved. Right. God is showing you mercy, and he can do that because he showed Christ no mercy when he took his sins upon you mm-hmm. on the cross. He paid the full extent. Right Now you're free, you're forgiven, you're redeemed, you don't have any more penalty to pay because Jesus paid it all. I think so in the in the context of mercy and not receiving what we were due, I think of the parable Jesus told of the un, unmerciful servant, the unforgiving mm-hmm. servant, you know, that went, had a large debt that he owed to the king and went uh, to the king. And, you know, this was the, the amount of was owed was lifetimes worth of income. And he pleaded with him, I cannot pay. And he forgave him all that debt. And what does he do? But turn around and go and somebody owed a much smaller debt against him. 
he held that against them and had them thrown in prison. Um, and the idea is that that in penal substitutionary atonement, the mercy of God, we do not receive the the full weight of God's wrath that we deserve. He's merciful to us, uh, even when we when we are not worthy of it. Right. And so, <clears throat> one of the things he's doing in this book, and we were talking about this earlier, and you catch on to it pretty quickly, is he is confronting people who, or or trying to build a case against people who wouldn't like this idea, either whether it be substitution or uh, propitiation. Retribution. Or retribution, right? So what are some reasons people are rejecting penal substitutionary atonement? Well, I think the first one that comes to my mind is that uh, penal substitutionary atonement talks about sin. <laughs> like right. you, you only need... Uh, or we see this because there's a sin problem and people don't like to think of themselves as sinners. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is largely it. And this is why, you know, well, when we, when they struggle with the idea of God only forgiving people based upon somebody paying that penalty. Yeah. Like they, they want the idea that God can forgive apart from somebody paying the penalty. Hmm. Um, and, and not demanding that justice. I think that, that people, theologians um, of the more liberal persuasion, have really wrestled with this. They just cannot understand how God, the God of love, can't just forgive people. Right. And, I, it, and isn't that also part of, like, they, they, they cannot reconcile these things that they see, that they think are opposed to one another. How mm -hmm. could God be a God of wrath, you know, demanding retributive justice? And also a God that shows love and pardons. Yeah. And they, and they humanize God to, to an extent because right. we do understand that the Bible commands us to forgive. Right. Right? Right. And be forgiving um, to people, you know, that trespass against us. Mm -hmm. And so then there's this idea like, well, okay, as we are commanded to be, God is. Mm -hmm. And there are elements to that which are true. But also God, you know, says very clearly in Romans chapter nine and what he said to Moses and, and what Paul is ultimately um, quoting from there is that he said, I, I will uh, show mercy to whom I will show mercy. So with God, mercy in this in the salvific sense of eternal forgiveness and a place in heaven is selective and he doesn't show it to everyone. And I think that's very troubling for some to hear. It's yeah. it's almost like it's a different God. Like, I don't know this. This isn't the kind of the concept of the God that I had. So I think that some struggle um, with that. He Packer does draw on that a little bit and talk about how the fact that, um, that God is not like us. And... Um, and he is God. So what he does is perfect and right and good even if we can't fully make sense of it right. or put those pieces together, you know? Mm. And, um, and I think that's an important uh, concept to bring out. Yeah. And again, here we are in that realm of mystery. Yeah. We can't right where we started. Those. Yeah. Right where we started. Yep. Because there are some of those things that raise questions. Right. Right. And so, but we take what God says 
at face value. We we believe it. We can formulate our doctrines around it, even if there's going to be elements of this that are mysterious to us. And, and I think Packer does a good job of bringing that out when it comes even to penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah. I had one other uh, quote that I wanted to read from him. on. Uh, this is on page 77 if you're reading the book. And this is when he's 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 moved from substitution, introducing the idea of penal substitution. But he says this. He says, The notion which the phrase penal substitution expresses is that Jesus Christ our Lord, moved by a love that was determined to do everything necessary to save us, endured and exhausted the destructive divine judgment for which we were otherwise inescapably destined and so won us forgiveness, adoption, and glory. Right, again, like we that that summarizes for us penal substitution and what took place uh, through that. Yeah, and I think whenever Christians have just read the read the Bible at face value, they see it everywhere. Right. They just understand from the concept of forgiveness and and um and that that Christ has paid a price for us. What all that entailed is is hard to fully determine if not impossible to determine but that there was a penalty that we owed because of our sin that christ paid it for us yeah that's the concept of penal substitutionary atonement um so backer what he does then in the in the last bit of this chapter is he uh, presents an analysis his analysis and kind of an expanded definition if you will of uh penal substitutionary atonement and I think that this is the really practical aspect of this and the aspect that moves us to worship. So what I want to do is just walk through those five things and just try and briefly summarize them, if we could. Okay, um, And I'll just I'll do, read read off what he, he, he has. He has five, five things. He talks about substitution and retribution, substitution and solidarity, substitution and mystery, substitution and salvation, and then finally substitution and divine love. Okay, So when he's talking about, first of all, substitution... And, and retribution, uh, what he is first talking about there is that when we come to the cross of Calvary and we understand that that, that, that aspect of uh, retributive justice and that Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God, um, he says this, he says, this analysis, if correct, shows what the job, what job the word penal does in our model. If there is, it is there not to prompt theoretical puzzlement about the transferring of guilt, but to articulate the insight of believers who, as they look at Calvary in the light of the New Testament, are constrained to say, Jesus was bearing the judgment I deserved and deserve, the penalty for my sins, the punishment due me. He loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. So that's the first aspect when we think about uh, what? How? How do I think about this? How do I apply this? When you look at the cross, you see that Jesus died for your sins. Every sin you've ever committed and ever will commit, He has taken the wrath of God that was due you for that sin. So that's substitution and re- retribution. The second part is substitution and solidarity. And what He means by this is that in Christ's atoning work, we find ourselves uh, uh, in solidarity with Him. And I, I think another way to to phrase this would be in union with Christ. Uh, we now identify with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Romans 6 talks about this. You know, uh, when he died, to, I died to sin. When he was raised to life, I was raised to walk in newness of life with him. Um, and that has very practical implications for uh, Christian living. 
that I can now live in such a way because I've been identified with Christ. Uh, Romans 5 also, that, uh, that Christ is the second Adam. You know, we are identified with Adam's sin uh, in the garden. When he sinned, we all sinned. So in Christ, we are identified with Christ by faith in his, in his death, burial, and resurrection. Again, Packer says this. He says, um, So now Christ's substitution for us, which is exclusive in the sense of making the work of atonement wholly his and allowing us no share in performing it, is seen to be from another standpoint inclusive of us, inasmuch as ontologically and objectively in a manner transcending bounds of space and time. And get this, Christ has taken us with him into his death, through his death, into his resurrection. I think that's a really key phrase. Christ has taken us with him into his death and through his death into his resurrection. So that's what that's what he means by solidarity. And then he continues saying, Thus, knowledge of Christ's death for us as our sin-bearing substitute requires us to see ourselves as dead, risen, and alive forevermore in him. We who believe have died, painlessly and invisibly, we might say, in solidarity with him because he died painfully and publicly in substitution for us. End quote. So there, when we look at the cross, we say, I died with Christ. When we think about battling sin in our own lives, we can say, I don't have to be continue, continue to be enslaved to this because Christ died for me. I died with him. I died to that sin. So that's substitution and solidarity. And the third one is substitution and, and mystery. And this is where he gets to, um, we don't, we don't we, and he's talked about this before, we don't want to analyze penal substitutionary atonement just on the basis of the mechanics of what's going on uh, in a mechanical way, but that's the mystery aspect of it. Um, and so what, what he talks about is, um, he, he quotes from like Romans chapter 8, verse 32, that that God did not spare his son, but gave him up to death for us. And then Packer says, which shows that he being he, he could not have saved us at any less cost to himself, the mysterious solidarity and virtue of which Christ could be made sin by the imputing to him of our answerability and could die for our sins in our place, and we could be made righteous before God through faith by virtue of his obedience. So what he's saying is, the mystery is that this that the only way that we could have our sin atoned for was through this death of Christ. It's a mysterious um, thing. And then the the fourth the fourth point that he brings out is substitution and salvation. And in this he talks about um, when we think about substitution, we think of uh, one for one relationship. One uh, Christ died, or or in any in any analysis. Uh, if you're substituting one thing for another, you're you're replacing that. So in the work on the cross, Christ's work of substitution was for sinners, specific uh, people that he he died and died for. And he says this: Should we not then think of Christ's substitution for us on the cross as a definite one-to-one relationship between him and each individual sinner? He says this seems scriptural. For Paul says he loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians two twenty. And he continues, but if Christ specifically took and discharged my penal obligation as a sinner, does it not follow that the cross was decisive for my salvation, not only as its sole meritorious ground, but also as guaranteeing that I should be brought to faith and through faith to eternal life? For is not the faith that receives salvation part of God's gift of salvation according to what is affirmed in Philippians 1.29 and John 64 and implied in what Paul says of God calling and John of new birth? So, 
again, what he's saying there is that when Christ died on the cross as my substitute, he died for me, thus procuring everything that I needed for my salvation. Uh, I think someone would wrongly teach that Christ died to make salvation possible, and so therefore you have to you know, exercise faith or whatever it is to attain that. Uh, but when we understand substitution properly and penal substitutionary atonement, we can say with Paul that Christ loved me and gave himself for me and procured everything that I need uh, for my salvation. And then the last thing he talks about is uh, substitution and divine love. And this is really hitting back at this idea that some would teach that, that uh, penal substitutionary atonement is cosmic child abuse. You know, that God, uh, how unjust of God to punish Christ for our sins. And rather what he says is, no, it's, it's a Trinitarian work. The Father loved the Son and gave the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Father and the Son love their people, and, and Jesus does the work of saving uh, all those who the Father has given to him. Um, and, and they also talk about in this that, that the Father's giving of the Son, the Son dying in our place, is the supreme act of love. You know, Jesus said, greater love than this as no man than he'd lay down his life for his friends. Uh, what greater act of love is there than for someone to, to give of their life in the place of another? And that was so perfectly uh, seen for us in the, the work of Christ, whereby he satisfied God's wrath against us, the punishment that we deserve. Yeah, good. So some application to this. Just uh, practically speaking, I, yeah. I came up with two of them, two applications. The first one is um, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Yeah. In other words, the debt has been paid. You don't owe God anything um, for your to, to, to pay off your sin. And um, so no amount of, of self-loathing or whatever, penance or whatever, because it's already done. And, and it's been uh, paid for. So um, there's there's no condemnation to us, and that's liberating to know that. And secondly, and this ties into that, because your debt's been paid, when you as a Christian walk through hard times in this life, you walk through trials that are painful, you aren't to ask the question, am I being punished for my sins? Okay, like in other words, am I bearing the penalty for my sin? What I see in Scripture when it comes to hard times and trials is that God disciplines his children, which is different than making them pay for their sins. Does that make sense? Yeah, Hebrews 6 talks about that. Uh, he, yeah, Hebrews, Hebrews uh, 12, yeah. actually. Oh, is it 12? Yeah, with the discipline. It's double six. Like, yeah, <laughs> six times two is what you were thinking. Exactly. That's, a, so, <laughs> that's uh, the way I always reference Bible passages. <laughs> right. That's the easiest way to remember them. <laughs> but um, so, so, so that when we, you know, and the gospel helps us make sense of suffering, it's really what it does, is that God is working good in that for our spiritual growth, but it isn't us paying for our sins, the penalty for that. And, you know, the Roman Catholic uh, tradition has the um, the teaching of purgatory, which you still have to go to purgatory. And in, and in somehow that in some ways is purging off sin and different things. And um, that's just not the way it works. So the penalty has been paid in full and uh, and Christ paid it all. 
And then, yes, we, we now owe our lives to him in that sense. We live for him. But it isn't even that. And I get, I get uh, really uncomfortable with the language of I'm going to pay him back. We're not paying him back. It's Jesus paid it all. You know, we live our lives for him, but he paid it all. So no condemnation to us. And the suffering in this world is not a penalty that we have to pay for our sins in order to be right with God. Well, we hope this conversation has been helpful to uh, you that are listening to it. We appreciate you uh, listening to this to this podcast. Again, if you ever have questions about what we've talked about, uh, we invite you to just come up and talk to us if you're part of our church. Uh, if you're outside of our church, we'd love to hear from you as well. Email us at thecalvarycast at gmail.com. And until next time.